everyone. Um, just going to invite you to join me in prayer before we read the scripture. Father God, we praise you that you speak to us through your word and your spirit. Please open our hearts and minds to see and know your goodness, love and truth revealed today. Amen. The first reading is from the Old Testament. It is Malachi chapter 3 verses 1 to 4. I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness. And the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord as in days gone by, as in former years. The second reading is from the New Testament from Luke chapter 1, verses 67 to 80. His father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said through his holy prophets of long ago, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy to our ancestors and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham, to rescue us from the hands of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven, to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the path of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit and he lived in the wilderness until he appeared publicly to Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good to be with you. Okay, so the first thing you have to understand is that there are two types of people in the world. The entire world can be divided into two types of people. The first type is like me, okay? And if we go out to eat, it doesn't matter what happens. I could have ordered steak and they could have brought me a raw, uncooked, full chicken on a plate. And I will never complain to the waiter. Ever. That's half of the world. You will never complain no matter what. And the other half is moral degenerates, okay? <laughs> Not some of you in this room, okay? But there is one situation in which I will uh, I sound like I'm complaining. And that is something that every single one in this room that has ever, has, have a, has, has ever had a child 
will understand is that there is a secret signal which children emit from some bit of their body. And when this signal is emitted, a shroud comes down upon the evening and the parents somehow intuitively know, we have five minutes left and then things are kicking off. You just know, and in that situation, if you're in a restaurant and your children begin giving the signal, we have five minutes left, God help the waiter when they come round. Because at that point, both me and my wife will be like, bring us the check right now. <laughs> and when I got home from work on Saturday, I, I, I went, I picked up my, my daughters at the nursery, and, and, and my wife is on a 12-hour shift, so it's just me and them. I know we have two hours, and there's loads of stuff we have to do in the next two hours to get them to home, into their jammies, having dinner, reading their story, brushing their teeth, and getting to bed. We have two hours, very structured time. In this two hours, suddenly the children begin emitting the signal. And I know this is going to be a very, very difficult <laughs> evening. So we get home, I'm rushing around, I'm grabbing, grabbing jammies, making the dinner as quick as I can. I put them at the table, give them the dinner, start, doing, start, start getting everything else ready. And, and Ailey just says, Daddy! And I look over and she just looks at me with a cup of milk and goes, and so I'm like, Ailey! So I go, I go to clean her up, start getting, get, get her more milk, get her more food, going back upstairs, getting everything ready, come down, and I just hear everything scream, just screams downstairs. So I run down the stairs to see what's going on, and I come through the door, and Ailey is sitting at the table, just, and, and on the ground is her entire plate of food, just flung across the thing, and she's just looking at me like this. Which really made me mad because I said, don't do that face at me. That's my face. I taught you that face. That's my angry face. You can't use it on me. But why'd she do that? Why'd she literally pour milk on herself? Why'd she throw her food onto the ground? It wasn't because she was malicious or angry. Every parent probably knows why she did it. It's because I thought what I need to be doing this evening to take care of my children is I need to be running around and getting everything ready. And Ailey was basically in her childhood way saying, can you just look at me? Can you just give me a moment's attention? Do you think I care if I have the right jammies? No, your mother will judge me the next day if you don't have the right jammies. But that's not what she wants. And the truth is, if you think that anyone in this room is different, you're lying to yourself. Most of the reason that we metaphorically take our dinner and fling it on the ground, most of the reason that we hurt one another, that we harm one another, that relationships break down, that our world is in the state it is in, is because we, every one of us, have an insatiable need to be recognized, to be seen, known, and valued for who we are. And when that doesn't happen, we get angry when our spouse doesn't seem to realize that we've been working as hard as we can all day to care for the children and comes home and ignore us, we respond in rage. When our coworkers don't see our labor, don't see our work, don't see our value and treat us with disrespect, we feel harmed and hurt and angry. The history of the human race, one way of telling that history, might be a long, sad litany of what happens when people who desperately need to be seen, known, and valued, just recognized, are forgotten, passed over, and rejected. This story that we just read 
is about a priest, a priest named Zechariah. We're going to read more about his story in, in later weeks. But to understand, we're just going to focus this week on the song that he sings at the very end. But to understand that, you have to understand at least a little bit about what it means to be a priest. And paradoxically, perhaps, what I want to suggest is that what it means to be a priest has everything to do with this desire we all have for recognition. To be a priest, you actually can't just go to the bits of the Bible like Leviticus and Deuteronomy's that talks about what the priestly vocation is. You actually have to go back to the very beginning of the Bible to what it means to be human if you want to understand what it is to be a priest. Because in the first two chapters of the Bible, there is two verses which describe the calling, the vocation of every human person. The first one is in Genesis 1 and it says, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. But that word fill can also be translated as consecrate as a priest. The calling of every single human person was to somehow declare or make holy the earth, to consecrate it. In Genesis 2, the calling of all of humanity is described this way. It says that we are to be put in the Garden of Eden and to work and to take care of it, or to tend, or to keep, and to guard it. And these same two words are then picked up later in the Bible to describe the core of the priestly vocation. And when the core of that priestly vocation is described, the, the, the metaphors that are used all refer back to creation. They all refer back to Genesis. In fact, the very structure of the temple, as it is described in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, is drenched in the language of creation and of the cosmos. For example, outside in the temple courts, there's a giant basin, a basin that scholars today think may have held up to 10,000 gallons of water. And this basin is meant to symbolize that in Genesis, how does God create? In Genesis, God creates by dividing the waters, by putting them in their place. It's calling to mind this creation account. When you entered into the temple, there is two huge doors, and on those doors are two cherubim, these unique type of angels. And when Adam and Eve are expelled from the garden, when they're removed from the divine presence, two cherubim are placed there to guard the way. In the center of the garden are two trees, the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And in the center of the temple are two pillars with trees on them. All of the temple is meant to reflect the cosmos, the creation. Why? See, the story starts with this priestly vocation for all of humanity, what they are essentially told when it says to fill the earth, they're told to consecrate the earth. They're, they, they, they're told that your job is to make all of the world a cosmic temple where I can dwell with you. The garden is a place where God dwelled intimately and immediately with humans, where they walked with him in the garden. And he's essentially saying, make the whole earth like this. The job of human creatures is to make the whole cosmos a fitting place where God can dwell in intimate communion with humans. But things go wrong. Humans reject the divine presence. 
And instead of expanding this garden outward, things begin to retract and to move inward. Instead of every, every place in the cosmos being the place where God's presence will dwell, now that is shrunk down to the single location in the Holy of Holies in a temple. And instead of every single human person having the vocation to consecrate the world, to dwell in the presence of God, to make it fit for him, now only a very small group of people are designated as priests. And only they, once a year, can enter into the presence of God, which was meant to fill the whole earth. There's a kind of tragic dimension to the formation of this particular priesthood and the consecration of this very particular place in the temple. And so what Zechariah was doing is this may have been the one time of the year, what happens in this story, which we'll hear more about later, is this may have been the one time of the year in his entire life where he went into that place, where he went into that holy of holies, where he encountered directly the presence of God, where he got to fulfill his priestly vocation. And when priests went into that, they wore this thing called an, an, an ephod. It has 12 stones on it that represent the 12 tribes of Israel. What the priest was doing is basically what the people couldn't do. These 12 stones were symbolic of them. So he symbolically, wearing this outfit, brings the people into the presence of God while they remain outside, not able to enter the presence themselves. And his job after meeting with God was then to symbolically, but not literally, bring God back to the people, to speak to them the words that he heard from God. And interestingly, what Zechariah's own story is about is his failure to fulfill that role. He goes into the presence of God. He meets with God's presence in the form of an angel. He, angel, he hears the word, but he can't trust it. He can't believe it. He's not able to share it. And his failure is symbolically represented by him being made unable to speak for a number of months. We'll hear more about the details of that story later. But what Luke loves to do, Luke, the person who wrote this gospel, he loves to say, if you understood this one individual's story, if you really grasped what happened to them, you would grasp the entirety of God's plan for the cosmos. If you understood what God wants to do for Zechariah, you would understand what God wants to do for every one of us. And eventually, God restores Zechariah to his priestly vocation. And Zechariah sings a song. He utters a prophecy, which not only tells what's happened to him, but which tells what God's plan is for this whole cosmos, how he's going to reverse the restriction of God's presence again. The song he sings begins and ends like this. He's saying this is the core of what God is doing in Jesus and in John the Baptist, the son of Zechariah. It begins and ends with a promise that God will visit his people. Now that might not sound that interesting, but that kind of misses the entire point. He's saying what is more significant than anything I will do for you, what is more significant than forgiving your sins, what is more forgiven than freeing you from slavery, what matters more than any of that is that my divine presence will visit you. And you can't speak too expansively about what that means because the tender mercy of our God because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. That word, the tender mercy, is literally the inner parts. It's like what we would call the heart. 
He's basically saying that the very most sacred, most set-apart, holy part of God, the bit of God's presence that was reserved in the Holy of Holies only to be visited once a year by a very select group of people, that presence will come upon you. It will walk and dwell in your midst. It will have a name, Jesus. The presence that had been retracting and being isolated to this single location that only certain people can contact will be unleashed. And Zechariah says of his son that you will go, and this is a key word, before the Lord, classic priestly phrase, before the Lord to prepare the way for him. That doesn't just mean you'll be first in time. It does mean that. It does mean that John the Baptist is going to be this kind of priestly figure who who prepares people for the coming of God's presence, for the coming of Jesus. But that language of before means something far more serious. One of the most famous failures of a priest in the Bible is when Eli's sons um, basically do a bunch of bad stuff to help themselves. They're like bad priests who, who benefit themselves rather rather than others, and they are judged very harshly, and the reason it says they are judged is because you were called to go before the Lord, to live your life before his face. This is the essence of the priestly vocation, to go into the Holy of Holies and before the face of the Lord to serve him. Zechariah says that presence is being unleashed. My son will go before him and even more scandalously. The purpose of the coming of God's presence of his visitation is to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. few chapters later, Jesus goes to the synagogue in his hometown where the religious people met. He opens up a scroll to a, a, a chapter from the book of Isaiah, and he begins to read that scroll. And the scroll talks about freedom coming to the oppressed, about those who are in poverty being lifted up, about the brokenhearted being restored. And he says, this is being fulfilled today in your hearing. And yet what that chapter also talks about is this. And you will be called priests of the Lord. You will be named ministers of our God. What Jesus is coming to do is to reverse the restriction that has been going on since the garden. To say that every human person is called to be a priest. That's what we are made for from the beginning. Every human person is made to live before him as if we are in the very holy of holies all of our days. In the Reformation, they had this phrase to describe it. It's a Latin phrase, quorum Deo. It means before God or before the face of God. The core of our identity which is offered to us in Jesus is to have all of our days unfold before the very face of the almighty, infinite creator God of the universe. This means two things for that deep yearning we all have for recognition. The first thing it means is that life has untold dignity. 
Do you think that on that one time when Zechariah went into the Holy of Holies, when he performed that priestly duty before the face of the Lord, do you think even for a moment he was bored? Why not? Is it because everything he was doing was intrinsically interesting? No. When priests went into the Holy of Holies, lots of what they did would have seemed like a very mundane task. They would have been washing the bowls and cleaning up after the incense and lighting other candles. Why would he have felt, this is weighty, this is valuable, even he would have had his hands shaking just washing a bowl? Why? Because he's before the face of almighty God in the holy place in his temple. What if creation is his temple? What if the cosmos really was his holy place? What if your vocation and calling was to live before his face? What would that mean about trimming the hedges? What would that mean about dropping off your kids at the school gate? What would that mean about whatever sort of research you're doing that you're tempted to think this is meaningless and without value? What would it mean about working at Tesco's? What it would mean is that all of that is done in the holy place before the face of the Almighty, that this is a sacred task and calling you have been commissioned for and that our calling, as it said in Genesis, is to consecrate that place. That you're not just working at Tesco's. You, when you're working behind that teal, have a moment to take what could be a meaningless interaction, which could be a dehumanizing interaction, and to consecrate it, to make it holy, to set apart so that God can be met there, that his presence might dwell with people. That every single aspect of our life has profound worth and dignity, not just the religious bits, not just the bits that happen on Sunday, all of it because all of life is meant to be lived before his face, consecrated as part of his holy temple. But the second thing it means is this. It means very simply that he sees you. It means that this yearning we have, that someone would see our trials and our struggles, that someone would see our successes and our gifts, it means that in all of it, it is played out before God's face. See, oftentimes the way we try to, to, to be seen, to be noticed, to be valued, actually ends, it goes in the exact wrong direction. Kierkegaard, the, the Danish philosopher, talks about this really, really powerfully. He talks about how we oftentimes think, if, if, if I can find a way to be unique, then people will see and notice and value me. If I dress unlike anybody else, if I dress really differently, then people will see me. But of course, what you end up doing when you try to dress really uniquely is you just pick one particular subgroup and dress like that group and look exactly like them, right? We think it, uh, people will really notice with me if I'm successful at my job. And how do you become successful? You make yourself unoffensive, you say whatever you think people want to hear, you do whatever it takes to get ahead, and you try to be noticed by being exactly like everyone else by doing exactly what you think others want to see. And he calls this the leveling. By trying to do everything we can to be noticed and recognized, we end up all becoming exactly the same. We're leveled. 
and he describes it this way. Surrounded by hordes of men, absorbed in all sorts of secular matters, more and more shrewd about the ways of the world, such a person forgets himself, and this is the key bit, forgets his name divinely understood, does not dare to believe in himself, finds it too hazardous to be himself, and far easier and safer to be like the others, to become a copy, a number, a mass man. Therefore, the tragedy is not that such a self did not amount to something in the world. No. The tragedy is that he did not become aware of himself. Kierkegaard's saying the only anecdote isn't to go out and think, I'll do something so unique that everyone will have to notice me. It's to recognize, to be in awe of the fact that your name is divinely understood, that you as an individual are known by God, that your life proceeds before his face. And if we really knew that, it would transform us, almost of its own power. Four children went into a wardrobe and they found a magical land. The land was in the midst of winter, it was ruled by a wicked witch and there was, they, they heard stories of a good king, a lion named Aslan, and they were delighted and excited, except for one. One of the children named Edmund wasn't excited at all. As they're talking about this king Aslan, Edmund heard the conversation and hadn't enjoyed it much because he kept on thinking that the others were taking no notice of him and trying to give him the cold shoulder. They weren't, but he imagined it. And Edmund decided in that moment to make a huge mistake, not because he was selfish, not because he was malicious, not because he was mean, not because he was angry, because he was longing to be recognized, was afraid he was being forgotten. So he went to the wicked witch and he betrayed his brother and his sisters. But this is why. You mustn't think even now that Edmund was quite so bad that he actually wanted his brother and sister to be turned into stone. He wanted to be a prince and later a king. And he told himself that nothing very bad would happen to them, even though deep down he knew the witch was very cruel. This is the story of what happens when that desire and longing for recognition goes unmet. We find ourselves doing things we would have never thought ourselves capable of. And the story ends in restoration. Edmund goes to the prince, goes to the wicked witch, betrays his brother and sisters, but soon finds that it's not working, soon is disillusioned and disappointed and crushed by being with this wicked person. He's rescued, brought back to the camp of Aslan, and he and Aslan go speak alone for a very long time. And Aslan returns brings Edmund back to his brother and sister and says, everything that happened is forgiven, it's forgotten. No one need ever bring up what Edmund has done again. And yet just in that moment, shrieking in the distance, the wicked witch and her followers come trundling into camp. And the witch points out a long finger and shouts for all to hear, you have a traitor in your midst. And it says everyone starts looking at Edmund, seeing how he's going to respond, seeing what he's going to do. And it says, but after all he had been through, 
Edmund had got past thinking about himself, and he just went on looking at Aslan. It didn't seem to matter to him one way or the other what the witch had said. What if it were true that your victories and your defeats, that your best moments and your worst failures, that your mundane, trivial seeming, boring moments of life were seen, known, and valued by the Almighty? What if you had a sacred calling to consecrate your daily life as a place that God could dwell with us. This is what it means that God loves us, by the way. See, we, we oftentimes think about God's love in quite, quite abstract terms. The theologian and philosopher Ellen, Eleanor Stump talks about how most, there's, there's two parts to God's love, and we oftentimes only think about the first one. The first thing is that God's love means he wants to do good to us. He wants us to flourish. He wants to give us good things. That might seem obvious, but such a God could nonetheless be distant and far away and uninterested and just showering good things upon us at a difference. But God wants, at a distance, but God wants something more. He wants union. He wants communion. He even, scandal though it is, says in scripture, he wants to be our friend. He wants to recognize, see, know, and value you as an individual. So in closing, the question is just this. If that's true, why aren't we transformed? If it's true that you have this level of recognition from Almighty God, why are most of us, myself included, still desperately insecure and running around asking that others would give us that very recognition which we already have freely? And I suspect the reason is this. What all the things I just said about God seem very abstract. They seem very ethereal. They don't seem very concrete. The idea that God knows you, values you, sees you, recognizes you seems like some abstract truth. And what seems far more real is what your colleagues say about you. What seems far more concrete is what the person that you want a romantic relationships, what they say about you. What seems far more real is even what people say about you on the internet. But of course, the truth is the opposite. What people say about you on the internet is fleeting. Your reputation is a vapor that can come today and go tomorrow. Other people's affection will never last. What is more true, more real, and more lasting is the face of the unchanging infinite God. And when we come to this place every Sunday, we come to a sacred space, yes, the bowling club. Because what it means for something to be holy is to be set aside for a divine use. And for these few hours, this place is set aside for a divine purpose at which we long to hear and to believe what we know to be true, but which feels abstract and ethereal. We long to hear God's promises read over our heads. We long to encounter the holy of holies, the very presence, the tender mercy of almighty God at his table. So may you receive that presence and that promise this morning.
May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. respond with